0: A class on Christian experience and assurance. From the narrated Puritan podcast. Spiritual conflict. Satan's temptations. Evil thoughts. We have spoken of the Christian's enemies and the general. It is now intended to enter into a more particular view of the conflict which is experienced by the pilgrim to Zion. Reading from Archibald Alexander thoughts on religious experience. Swarms. vain thoughts may be reckoned among the first and most constant enemies of the servant of God. The mind of man is like a fountain which is continually sending forth streams. There is not a moment of our waking time when the rational soul is entirely quiescent. How it may be in our sleeping hours, this is not the place to inquire, as we are not in that stage engaged in this warfare. Well, perhaps this is saying too much, Archibald Alexander says, I believe that sin may be committed in your sleep, for there is often a deliberate choice of evil after a struggle between a sense of duty and an inclination to sin. And often the same vain and impure thoughts which were too much indulged in waking hours infest us when we are asleep, and we may find it much readier entertainment than when we have all of our senses about us. It is difficult indeed to say when moral agency is suspended so as to render the person inculpable for his volitions, and many know that they consent to temptations in sleep when they abhor the evil as soon as they are awake. In other cases, inclination is indulged with not the least sense of the moral turpitude of the act, but in some cases people in sleep consent to sin with the clear apprehension of the evil of the thing to which they consent. Here there must be some guilt for if there was not an evil nature prone to iniquity, such volitions would not take place. I am reading now from Richard Baxter's work called The Christian Directory. This book of 900 pages, double-spaced columns, was written in about a year and a half, but there's so much light here. The tempter's Method in Applying His Prepared baits. Temptation 1 The devil's first work is to present a tempting bait and all of its alluring, deceiving properties. To make it seem as true as may be to the understanding and as good and amiable as may be to the will. To say as much as can be said for an evil cause, he makes his image of truth and goodness as beautiful as he can. Sin shall have sugar on top of it, and its pleasure shall be his strength. Shen shall have its wages paid down in hand. He will set it out with full mouth praises. Oh, what a fine thing it is to be rich and please the flesh continually! To have command and honor and lusts and sports and whatever you desire. Who would refuse such a condition that they may have it? All this will I give you was the temptation which he thought fit to assault Christ himself with, and he will corrupt the history of time past and tell you that it went well with those that took his way, and for the future he will promise him that they shall be gainers by it, as he did Eve, and shall have peace, though they please their flesh and sinning. William Gurnall in The Christian in Complete Armor says, The Christian is to proclaim and prosecute an irreconcilable war against his bosom sins, till sins which have lain nearest to his heart must now be trampled under his feet. Said so David, I have kept myself from my iniquity, now what courage and resolution does this require? You think Abraham was tried to purpose when called to take his son, his son Isaac, his only son, whom he loved, Genesis 22, 2, and offer him up with his own hands and no other? Yet, what was that to this? Soul. Take your lust, your only lust, which is the child of your dearest love, your Isaac, to sin, which has caused the most joy and laughter from which you have promised yourself the greatest return of pleasures or profit. As ever you look to see my face with comfort, lay your hands on it and offer it up. Pour out the blood of it before me. Run the sacrificing knife of mortification into the very heart of it. And this freely, joyfully, for it is no pleasing sacrifice that is offered when your countenance is cast down, when your face is frowning. And all this now before you have one more embrace from it. Truly, this is a hard chapter. Flesh and blood cannot bear this saying. Our loss will not lie so patiently on the altar. It's Isaac. There is a lamb that is brought to the slaughter which was dumb. But it will roar and shriek, even shake, and rend the heart with its hideous cries. Who is able to express the conflicts, the wrestlings, the convulsions of spirit the Christian feels before he can bring his heart to this work or who can fully set forth the art of rhetorical insinuations with which such a loss will plead for itself. And in Satan he'll extenuate in mince the manner and tell you, but a little one, spare it, and your soul shall have its life for all of that. Another while he flatters the soul with the secrecy of it. He may keep me in your credit also. I will not be seen abroad in your company to shame you among your neighbors. Shut me up in the most retired room you have in your heart from the hearing of others, if you will only let me now and then have the wanton embraces of your thoughts and affections in secret. If that cannot be granted, to Satan will seem only to desire execution, may be stayed a while. As Jephthah's daughter of her father, let me alone a month or two, and then do to me according to that which has proceeded out of your mouth, Judges eleven thirty-six and thirty-seven. Well, knowing few such reprieve lusts, but at last obtain their full pardon, yea, recover their favor with the soul. Now what resolution does it require to break through such violence and importunity and notwithstanding all this to do present execution? Here the valiant swordsmen of the world have showed themselves mere cowards who have come out of the field with victorious banners, and then lived, yea, died slaves to a base lust at home. As one can say of a great Roman captain who, as he rode in his triumphant chariot through Rome, had his eye never off a courtesan that walked along the street. Behold how this goodly captain that had conquered such potent armies is himself conquered by one silly woman. John Owen, a treatise on the sin, says, Therefore often when we are ready to thank sin quite ruined, after a while we find it was but out of sight. In an unsearchable heart, it has hideouts and retreats where we cannot pursue it. The soul may persuade itself all as well when sin may be safe in the hidden darkness of the mind, which it is impossible that he should look into, for whatever makes something able to be seen is light. The soul may suppose the will of sinning is utterly taken away when yet there is an unsearchable reserve for a more suitable object, a more vigorous temptation then at present it is tried with. Has a man had a contest with any loss and blessed victory over it by the Holy Ghost as to that present trial, when he thinks it is utterly expelled, he ere long finds it was but retired out of sight. He can lie so close in the mind's darkness, in the will's indisposition, in the disorder and carnality of the affections that no eye can discover it. The best of her wisdom is but to watch his first appearances, to catch his first under-earth heavings and workings, and to set ourselves in opposition to them. As stated in a previous podcast, I think very few Christians are in a habit of watching their thoughts, not knowing that if they don't guard the thoughts, they're not going to be able to guard the heart, Proverbs 4:23. 23. Archibald Alexander says, it may be safely asserted that no human mind in this world is free from the incursion of vain thoughts. The proportion of such thoughts depends on the circumstances of the individual and the degree of spirituality and self-government to which he is attained. The question very naturally arises here. Is a mere occurrence of vain or wicked thought sinful? This is a good question and should not be answered inconsiderately. It is said in scripture that the thought of foolishness is sin, but by thought in this place, we should probably understand intention. The wise man would teach that sin may be committed in the mind without any external act, a doctrine abundantly taught in other parts of Holy Writ, or we may understand it to mean that when thoughts of evil are entertained and cherished in the mind, there is sin. But as our thoughts are often entirely involuntary, Arising from we know not what causes, it cannot be that every conception of a wrong thing is itself sinful. If I conceive of another person stealing or murdering or committing adultery, if my mind abhors a deed, the mind is not polluted by it. Thoughts may not in themselves be sinful, and yet, they may become so if they fill and occupy the mind to the exclusion of better thoughts. Ideas of present scenes and passing transactions are not in themselves sinful because they are necessary, and often they are required by the duties which we have to perform. But if the current of the thoughts is so continuous that they leave no room for spiritual meditations, they become sinful by their excess. John Owen in the grace and duty being spiritually minded says the first thing which I would observe to this end is the present importunity of the world to impose itself on the minds of men in the various ways of insinuation in which it possesses and fills them, if it can attain this end, if it can fill the minds, the thoughts and affections of men with itself, it will in some fortify the soul against faith and obedience. Later in the book, John Owen says, It is a great character and description of the frame of men's minds in an unregenerate condition. or before the renovation of their natures that every imagination of the thoughts of their hearts is only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5 They are continually coining figments and imaginations in their hearts, stamping them into their thoughts, vain, foolish, and wicked thoughts. All other thoughts in them are occasional. Thence, these are the natural genuine products of their hearts. So the dearest and sometimes first discovery of the bottomless evil, treasure of filth, folly, and wickedness that is in the heart of man by nature is from the innumerable multitude of evil imaginations which are there coined or manufactured and thrust forth every day. So the wicked are said to be like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast out mire and dirt. Isaiah 57.20 There is a fullness of evil in their hearts, like that of water in the sea. This fullness is troubled or put into continual motion by their lusts and impetuous desires. So the mire and dirt of evil thoughts are continually cast upon them. It is therefore evident that the predominancy of voluntary thoughts is the best and most sure indication of the inward frame and state of the mind, for if it be so on the one side as to the carnal mind, it is so on the other as to the spiritual mind. Therefore, to be spiritually minded in the first place is to have the course and stream of those thoughts which we ordinarily retreat to. That which we approve of is suited to our affections. To be about spiritual things, in this consists in the minding of the spirit. Archibald Alexander goes on to say Every Christian has set time for their prayers and other devotional exercises. But if the mind on such occasions wanders off from the contemplation of those objects which should occupy it, such forgetfulness of God's presence and vain wandering of the thoughts are evidently sinful. And here is an arena on which many a severe conflict has been undergone and where alas many overthrows have been experienced by the sincere worshipper of God. There are many people it is to be feared to take little or no account of their thoughts and who, if they run through the external round of their spiritual duties, they feel satisfied with themselves. Multitudes are willing to be religious and even punctilious in duty, if no demand is made upon them for a fixedness of attention, fervency, or elevation of affection. The carnal mind hates nothing so much as a spiritual approach to God, and the remainders of this enmity and the pious are the very law in their members which war against the law of the mind. Romans 7.23 this is the very core of their inbred sin from which all evil thoughts proceed on account of which they need to be humbled in the dust every day that we live. Thomas Boston and human nature in its fourfold state states say to God to groan under this woeful disposition of the heart. They acknowledge it and set themselves against it in its subtle and dangerous insinuations. The unregenerate though most insensible of it are under the power of self. And wherever they turn themselves, they cannot move beyond a circle of self. They seek themselves, they act for themselves. Most men are so far from making God their chief end in their natural and civil actions, that in these matters God is not in all their thoughts. Their eating and drinking and such like natural actions are for themselves their own pleasure and necessity without any higher end. Zechariah seven six. Did you not eat for yourselves? To have no eye to the glory of God in these things, as He ought to have, they don't eat and drink. To keep up their bodies for the Lord's service, they do them not because God has said, you shall not kill. Neither do those drops of sweetness which God has put into the creature raise up their souls towards that ocean of delights that is in the Creator. Archibald Alexander says there is much reason to fear. The many who appear to be serious Christians are not at all in the habit of watching their thoughts and ascertaining evil that is in them. An old writer says, What busy flies were to the sacrifices on the altar, such are vain thoughts to our holy services. Their continued buzzing disturbs the mind and distracts its devotions. Bernard complained much of these crowds of vain thoughts. He said they pass and repass, come and go out, and will not be controlled. I would fain remove them, but I cannot. This is in perfect accordance with Paul's experience. When I would do good, evil is present with me. Romans 7.21 Chrysostom says that nothing is more dreadful to the godly than sin. This is death. This is hell. Therefore, though nothing amiss be discerned by man, yet he is he afflicted deeply, afflicted on account of his rebellious thoughts, which being in the secret closet of the heart can only appear to God. The same old writer introduces a struggling soul, mourning on this account, oh the perplexing trouble of my distracting thoughts. How did they continually disturb the quiet of my mind and make my holy duties become a weariness of my soul, the cold heart? They dampen the vigor, they deaden the comfort of my devotions. Even when I pray, God, to forgive my sins, I then, while I am praying for forgiveness, yes, whether it be in the church, or in the closet, or in the secret place, so frequently and so violently do the thoughts withdraw my heart from God's service, that I cannot have confidence he hears my plea, because I know by experience I do not hear myself. Surely, therefore, God must needs be far off from my prayer while my heart is so far out of his presence, hurried away with a crowd of vain imaginations. To this troubled soul, he then applies the following consolations. 1. These vain thoughts, being your burden, shall not be your ruin. And though they do take away from the sweetness, they shall not take away from the sincerity of your devotions. 2. It is no little glory which we give to God in the acknowledgement of his omnipresence and omniscience that we acknowledge him to be privy to the first risings of our inmost inward thoughts. It is much the experience of God's children, even the devoutest saints, that their thoughts of God and of Christ, of heaven and holiness, are very unsteady and fleeting, like the sight of a star through a telescope which is held by a pulsed hand, such is our view of divine objects. Know you have the gracious mediation of an all-sufficient Savior to supply your defects and procure an acceptance of your sincere though imperfect devotions. As you have the gracious mediation of an all-sufficient Savior to supply your defects, so have you the strengthening power of his Holy Spirit to help your infirmities, which strength is made perfect in weakness. When you are emptied, it shall fill you. When you are stumbled, it shall raise you. The experience of God's saints will tell you that they have long languished under this vexation of vain thoughts. They, after long conflict, have obtained a joyful conquest, and from morning doves have become mounting eagles. Richard Baxter in his Christian Directory, Directions Against Evil and Idle Thoughts. Direction 1. Know which are evil thoughts and retain such an odious character to them continually on your minds as may provoke you still to meet them with abhorrence. Evil thoughts are such as these. All thoughts against a being or attributes or relations or honor or works of God. Atheistical and blasphemous, idolatrous and unbelieving thoughts. All thoughts attend to disobedience or opposition to the will or word of God. All that savor of unthankfulness or lack of love to God, or of discontent and distrust, or lack of the fear of God, it attends to any of these, also sinful, selfish, covetous, proud studies to make a mere trade of the ministry for gain, to be able to overtalk others. Searching into unrevealed, forbidden things, inordinate curiosity and hasty conceitedness of your own opinions about God's decrees or obscure prophecies, prodigies, providence mentioned before about pride of our understandings. All thoughts against any particular word or truth, or precept of God, or against any particular duty, against any part of the worship and ordinance of God, attend to unreverent neglect of the name or holy day of God. Olympia thoughts against public duty or family duty, or secret duty, and all that would hinder or mar any one duty. All thoughts of dishonor, contempt, neglect, or disobedience to the authority of higher power set over us by God, either magistrates, pastors, parents, masters, or any other superiors. All thoughts of pride, self-exaltation, personal ambition, self-seeking, covetousness, voluptuousness, sensual thoughts proceeding from or tending to the corrupt and ordinate pleasures of the flesh, thoughts which are unjust and tend to the hurt and wronged of others, envious, malicious, reproachful, injurious, contemptuous, wrathful, revengeful thoughts, lustful, wanton, filthy thoughts, Drunken, gluttonous fleshly thoughts, inordinate, careful, fearful, anxious, vexatious, discomposing thoughts, presumptuous and secure, despairing and dejecting thoughts, slothful, delaying, negligent, and discouraging thoughts. Don't be insensible what a great deal of duty or sin are in the thoughts and of how dangerous a signification and consequence a course of evil thoughts is to your souls. They show what a man is, as much as his words or actions do. You know, I personally think it's very, very helpful to know what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment, so that we can guard our thoughts against these. What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism, in denying or not having a God, idolatry in having or worshipping more God than one, or any with or instead of the true God, to not having end up vouching him for our God, and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him required in this commandment, ignorance of him, forgetting him, misapprehensions of his ways and dealings with us, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, bold and curious searching into his secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of her mind, will, or affections upon other things, and taking them off from him in whole or in part, vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness and insensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means, carnal delights and joys, corrupt blind and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creatures, and so on. Archibald Alexander writes, The conflict with vain and wandering thoughts is common to all Christians, and is the subject of their frequent and deep lamentations. But there are other conflicts which seem to be peculiar to some of God's children, or are experienced in a much greater degree by some than others. They arise from horrible, wicked thoughts, blasphemous, atheistical, or abominably impure, which are injected with a power which the soul cannot resist and sometimes continue to rise in such thick succession that the mind can scarcely be said to be ever entirely free from them. I have known people of consistent piety and sound intellect to have been infested with the continual incursion of such thoughts for weeks and months together, so that they had no rest during their waking hours, and even their sleep was disturbed with frightful dreams. While thus harassed, they had no composure to attend on Christian duties. When they attempted to pray, Satan was present with his terrible suggestions, and when they presented themselves with God's people in his house, they found no comfort there, for the thought was continually introduced into their minds that there was no truth in the Bible or in any of its doctrines, and it is astonishing what new and unthought of forms of blasphemy and infidelity do in such cases arise, so did the ideas which, Occupied, their minds are often inexpressible and indeed not fit to be expressed in words. These may emphatically be called the fiery darts of the wicked one, Ephesians 6.16. They may be compared to balls or brands of fire cast into the house full of combustibles. The object of the enemy by such assaults is to perplex and harass the child of God and to drive him to despair. And as many who are thus tempted are ignorant of Satan's devices and of the depths of his subtlety. charge upon themselves the fault of all these wicked thoughts. The effect aimed at actually takes place. The tempted harassed soul is not only distressed above measure but for a season is actually cast down to the borders of despair. We know of no affliction in this life which is more intolerable than such a state of temptation when it is continued long. No doubt it is true that there are certain states of the physical system which favor the effect of these temptations. But this does not prove that the thoughts do not proceed from Satan. The arch fin is deeply versed in the makeup of human nature. And whenever he discovers a weak point, there he makes his assault. The melancholy person and people wasted and weakened with excessive grief are peculiarly susceptible of injury from such temptations. This is that class of doubting, mourning Christians who are forever disposed to look on the dark side of the picture, and who are accustomed to write bitter things against themselves? Job thirteen twenty six. On uninstructed minds, the effect often is to induce a belief that they have sinned to sin and to death by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, or that they have sinned beyond the reach of mercy, and that God has abandoned them to be a prey to sin and Satan. But it is not upon ignorant, weak, and deceive people only that these furious assaults are made. Such a man as Martin Luther was in frequent conflicts of this kind, and he was so persuaded that these were the temptations of the devil that he speaks of his presence with as much confidence as if he had seen him by his side, quote. So let's take a little time to speak of the remedy, and in this I'm going to use Christian and complete armor, William Gurnall. The design of Satan in this is to accuse, vex, and trouble the saint for his sin. The second main design in which Satan appears such a subtle enemy is as a troubler and as an accuser for sin, molesting the saint's peace and disquieting the saint's spirit. As the Holy Spirit's work is not only to be a sanctifier, but also a comforter whose fruits are righteousness and peace. So the evil spirit Satan is both a seducer to sin and an accuser for sin a tempter, and a troubler, and in that order. As the Holy Spirit is first a sanctifier and then a comforter, so Satan is first a tempter, then a troubler for the sin. Joseph's mistress first tries to draw him to gratify her lust, but that string breaking she has another to trounce him and charge him, and for a plea she has his coat to cover her malice. Nor is it hard for Satan to pick some hole in the saint's coat when he walks most circumspectly. The proper seat of sin is the will, of comfort, the conscience. Satan has not absolute knowledge of or power over these, they are locked up from any other but God. And therefore what he does, either in defiling temptations or disquieting the conscience, is by his wiles more than by open force. And he is not inferior in troubling to himself and tempting. Satan has as a serpent away by himself. Other beasts have their motion direct, right on. But the serpent goes askew, as we say, winding and writhing its body, so that when you see a serpent creeping along, you can hardly discern which way it is tending to. So Satan in his vexing temptations has many intricate policies, turning this way and that way the better to conceal his design from the saint, which will appear in these following methods. The first while of the devil, he vexes the Christian by laying his brats at the saint's door and charging him with that which is his own creature. And here he has such a notable art. In other words, what he is doing is he puts his brats, his children, at the door of the saints, and then tries to convince the saint that those are his own children. They came from his own naughty heart. And here he has such a notable art that many dear saints of God are woefully hampered and dejected as if they were the vilest blasphemers and various atheists in the world, whereas indeed the cup is of Satan's own putting into the sack. But so slightly is it conveyed into the saint's bosom that the Christian, though amazed and frightened at the sight of them, yet being jealous of his own heart and unacquainted with Satan's tricks of this kind, cannot conceive how such notions should come there, if they were not bred in and vomited out by his own naughty heart. So he bears the blame of the sin himself, because he cannot find the right father, mourning as one that is forlorn and cast off by God. Or else, he says, I should never have such vermin of hell creeping in my bosom. And here Satan has the end he proposes, for he is not so silly as to hope he should have welcomed with such a horde crew a blasphemous and atheistical thoughts in that soul, where he has been denied when he came in an enticing way. No. His design is by way of revenge, because the soul will not prostitute itself to its lust, otherwise, therefore, to the haunt it and scared with those imps of blasphemy against God. This is the way Sir Martin Luther, to whom he appeared and when repulsed by Luther, went away and left a noisome stench behind him in the room. Thus, when the Christian is worsted, Satan in his more pleasing temptations, being maddened, Satan belches forth this stench of blasphemous motions to annoy and affright him, that from them the Christian may draw some sad conclusion or other. Indeed, the Christian's sin lies commonly more in the conclusion which he draws from them, is that he is not a child of God than in the motions themselves. All the counsel therefore I shall give you in this case is to do with these motions as you use to serve those vagrants and rogues that come about the country, whom, though you cannot keep them from passing through your town, yet you look, they do not settle in and live there, but whip them and send them to their own home. Thus give these motions a law in mourning for them, resisting of them, and they shall not be your charge, It is like you shall seldom be troubled with such guests, but if once you come to entertain them and be Satan's nurse to them, then the law of God will cast them upon you. The second while of Satan, as a troubler, is in aggravating the saint's sins, against which he has such a notable declamatory faculty. Not that he hates the sin, but he hates the saint. Now in this, his chief subtlety is so to lay his charge that it may seem to be the act of the Holy Spirit. He knows an arrow out of God's quiver wounds deep, and therefore when he accuses, he comes in God's name. It's suppose a child were conscious to himself of displeasing his father, and one that owes him a spite to trouble him should counterfeit a letter from his father, and cunningly convey it into the son's hand who receives it. It's from his father, and this he charges him with many heavy crimes, he disowns him and threatens he shall never come in his sight and have a penny portion from him. And a poor son, conscious to himself of many undutiful carriages, and not knowing the plot of the devil, takes on heavenly, and can neither eat nor sleep from grief. Here is a real trouble begot from a false and imaginary crown. Does Satan observes how the squares go between God and his children, such a saint he sees tardy in his duty, faulty in that service, And he knows a Christian is conscious of this, and that the Spirit of God will also show his distaste for these, both which reasons prompt Satan to charge at length. breaking up all the aggravations he can think of and give it to the saint is sent from God. Thus he taught Job's friends to pick up those infirmities which draw from him in his distress and shoot them back in his face, as if indeed they had been sent from God to declare him an hypocrite. And denounce his wrath against Job for them. But how would we know the false accusation of Satan from the abuse of God and his Spirit? 1. If they cross any former act or work of the Spirit in your soul, they are Satan's, not the Holy Spirit's. Now, observe, Satan's scope in accusing the Christian and aggravating his sin is to unsaint him and persuade him he is but an hypocrite. Oh, says Satan. Now you have shown what you are. See what a foul spot is on your coat. This is not the spot of a child. Whoever that was a saint committed such a sin after such a sort. your comforts and confidence which you have bragged of were false. I warrant you. That you see, Satan, at one blow, dashes all in pieces. The whole fabric of grace which God has been written up many years in the soul must now at one puff of his malicious mouth be blown down and all the sweet comforts with which the Holy Spirit has sealed up God's love must be defaced with this one blot, which Satan draws over the fair copy of the saint's evidence. Well, soul, know for your comfort. If ever the Spirit of God has begun sanctifying or comforting work and caused you to hope in his mercy, he never is, he never will or can be, the messenger to bring the contrary news to your soul. His language is not yea and nay, but yea and amen forever. Indeed, when the saint plays a wanton, he can chide, yea, he will frown and tell the soul roundly of his sin, as he did David by Nathan, thou art a man, this you have done. He paints out his sin with such bloody colors as made David's heart melt as it were into so many drops of water, but that shall not serve his turn, he tells him what a rod is steeping for him, that shall smart to purpose, one of his own house, no other than his darling son shall rise up against him. This happens in order that he may the more fully conceive of how ill God took the sin of him, a child, a saint, when he shall know what it is to have his beloved child traitorously invade his ground and unnaturally hunt for his perilous life. Yet, not a word all this while is heard from Nathan teaching David to unsaint himself, or call himself a hypocrite, or doubt that he belongs to God, or to call in question the work of God in his soul, no, he had no such commission from God. He was sent to make a mourn for his sin, not from his sin to question his state, which God had so oft put out of doubt. Archibald Alexander writes, Many eminent saints of God have experienced in various forms the same conflicts with the great adversary, and when we describe these temptations as frequent in the experience of the children of God, we do not speak without authority. Paul says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. From this passage it is evident that our spiritual foes are numerous and powerful, and that the believer's conflict with them is violent. It is a wrestling, or a contention which requires them to put forth all their strength, and to exercise all their skill. Therefore it was that the Apostle who was himself engaged in this conflict urges it upon Christians to put on the armor of God against such enemies. Armor, offensive and defensive, is requisite. And blessed be God, there is an armory from which such armor may be drawn. Here Paul's enumeration of the several parts of this panoply, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, sandals of the gospel peace the shield of faith, did he place his highest as being an indispensable defense against the fiery darts of the wicked one, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, to all which must be added prayer and watchfulness. The soul struggling with the intrusion of wicked thoughts may be supposed to express its feeling in language anguish like the following. O my wretchedly wicked heart, which is a fountain from which proceed such streams of abominable thoughts! Surely if ever it had been washed in the fountain of Christ's blood, heard all purified by his spirit, so foul a corruption could never cleave to my soul, woe is me! For so far am I from being a holy temple of the Lord that my heart rather seems to be the cage of every unclean bird, and even a den of devils. The flames of hell seem to flash in my face, and the amazing tears of cursed blasphemies torture my soul and wound my conscience even unto death. I would rather choose to die ten thousand deaths than undergo the fears and frights and bitter pangs of my horrid thoughts and dreadful imaginations. In every place, in every action, in the church, and in my own room, in my meditations and in my prayers, these abominable and tormenting thoughts follow and harass me so that I loathe myself, and am a burden to myself. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7.24 Alas, I perish. While well, ashamed to speak what I abhor to think, I must needs despair of a cure, not knowing how to lay open my sore. Quote. So according Robert Mawson, Bishop of Londonderry, The following grounds of consolation, one. These horrid blasphemies which affright your soul, though they are your thoughts, yet are they Satan's suggestions, and not having the consent of your will, they bring no guilt upon your conscience. It is agreeable to the truth of God's word and the judgment of all divines, ancient and modern, that where the will yields no consent, there the soul may suffer temptations, but there is no sin in the act importunity and frequency of these suggestions which weary your soul resisting shall be a greater clown of glory in its overcoming to it is that we know that anyone born of god does not continue to sin the one who is born of god keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him first john five eighteen, 18 is it meant of wicked temptations no surely but of willful transgressions He doesn't touch him so as to leave the impress of sin and guilt upon the soul. It's no sin to be tempted. For Christ our Lord and Savior was tempted, but without sin, Hebrews 4.15. To admit to temptation with allowance or delight, that is sin. Number two, that these foul and frightful suggestions of not the consent of your will appears by this, that you have a loathing and abhorring of them which speaks the greatest aversion, and is so far from a consenting of the will. What is forcibly cast into the mind cannot be said to be received with our consent. It is out of our power to prevent Satan from suggesting evil thoughts. These arise not from your own corrupt nature, dear brats laid at your door, not your own lawful children. Using the same language of William Gurnall in the Christian Complete Armor. There are the buffetings of Satan. Paul had a messenger of Satan to buffet him, 2 Corinthians twelve seven, which is, a thorn in the flesh was constantly pricking and keeping him uneasy and tempting him to be impatient. He prayed earnestly and repeatedly to be delivered from the cross, but his request was not granted yet. He received an answer more gracious and beneficial than the removal of the thorn would have been. For the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, second Corinthians twelve nine. End quote. The heart assailed by Satan is like a city besieged, within which there lie concealed many traitors who as far as they dare will give encouragement and aid to the enemy outside. In his grace the chief difficulty in the case of many temptations, for although there is not a full consent or a prevailing willingness, yet there is something which too much concurs with the temptations except in shocking blasphemies which fill the soul with terror. The soul afflicted with these temptations is apt to think its case is singular. It is ready to exclaim, Never were any of God's children in this condition. It must be some strange corruption which induces the enemy thus to assault me in some awful displeasure of God towards me, which makes him permit such a temptation. To which it may be replied, Afflictions of this kind are no new thing, and that, with the real children of God, such cases are not uncommon in every age, and occur in the pastoral experience of every faithful minister. Some people have for years been so afflicted with these temptations that they have pined away and have been brought near the gates of death. And these as well, people of no ordinary piety. So learn to discriminate between the temptations and the sin. Examine with care what transgressions may have occasioned this sore affliction. Humble yourself before God with fasting and prayer and supplicate the throne of grace to obtain the mercy of God through the merits of your Savior, for the full and free pardon of whatever sin has occasioned these temptations. Beseech God to rebuke Satan, and then make an unreserved resignation of yourself into the hands of Jesus the great shepherd of the flock, that he may keep you as a tender lamb from the pawn teeth of the roaring lion. If stilty thoughts intrude, turn your minds quickly away from them. They are most effectually subdued by neglect. O oh, you afflicted, toss with tempests, and not comforted, Isaiah 54 11, his as children do with their parents. When they see anything frightful, they cling closer and hold faster. So do you with your God and Savior. Satan's aim is to drive you from God into some desperate conclusions about your state, or into some ruinous act. But you may disappoint a subtle adversary by running to Christ as your refuge and cleaving to him with humble, believing confidence. And when Satan sees this, he will soon cease from the violence of his temptation. And when the devil has left you, angels will come and minister to you, especially the angel of the covenant, Christ Jesus shall rejoice your soul with the quickening graces and cheering comforts of his spirit." Quote. And now, we'll close with a warning from the treatise of Temptation by John Owen. It is a great duty of all believers to use all diligence in the ways of Christ's appointment that they do not fall into temptation. I know God is able to deliver the godly out of temptations, I know he is faithful not to allow us to be tempted above what we are able, but will make a way for our escape. Yet I dare say I shall convince all those who will attend to what is delivered and written here, that it is our great duty and concern to use all diligence, watchfulness, and care that we do not enter into temptation, and I shall evidence by the ensuing considerations number one and that compendious instruction given us by our Savior concerning what we ought to pray for. This, of not entering into temptation, is expressly one head of it. Our Savior knew of what concern it was to not enter into temptation when he gave us this as one special subject of our daily dealing with God, Matthew 6.13. And the order of the word shows us what importance it is. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we are led into temptation, evil will befall us more or less. How God may be said to tempt us, or to lead us into temptation, I showed before. In this direction, it is not so much the not giving us up to it, as the powerful keeping us from it that is intended. The last words are, as it were, exegetical, or expository of the former. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So deal with us, that we may be powerfully delivered from that evil which attends our entering into temptation. Our blessed Savior knew full well our state and condition. He knows the power of temptations, having had experience of it. Hebrews 2 verse 18. He knows our vain confidence and the reserves we have concerning our ability to deal with temptations, as he found it in Peter. But he knows our weaknesses and folly, and how soon we are cast to the ground, and therefore does he lay in this provision for instruction at the instruments of his ministry, to make us heedful if possible in that which is of so great concern to us. If then we will repose any confidence in the wisdom, love, and care of Jesus Christ towards us, we must grant the truth pleaded for. John Owen says, And nothing. Does the folly of the hearts of men show itself more openly in the days in which we lived than in this cursed boldness after so many warnings from God and so many sad experiences every day under their eyes of running into and putting themselves upon temptations? Any society, any company, any conditions of outward advantages without one's weighing what their strength or what their concern of their poor souls is, they're ready for. Though they go over the dead and the slain that in whose ways and past but even now fell down before them, yet they will go on without regard or trembling. It is has door gone out hundreds, thousands of professors within a few years. But let us consider ourselves. What our weakness is. What our temptation is. Its power and ability with what it leads to. For ourselves, we are weakness itself. We have no strength no power to withstand confidence of any strength in us is one great part of our weakness so it was in peter he that says he can do anything can do nothing as he should do and which is worse it is the worst kind of weakness that is in us a weakness from the treachery of our hearts a weakness arising from that party which every temptation has in us if there was a castle Or fort it be never so strong and well fortified, yet if there be a treacherous party within, that is ready to betray it on every opportunity, there can be no preserving it from the enemy. There are traitors in our hearts, ready to take part, to close and side with every temptation, and to give everything over to them, yea, to solicit and bribe temptations to do the work as traitors inside an enemy. Do not flatter yourselves that you should hold out your secret lusts that lie lurking in your heart, which perhaps now stir not, which as soon as any temptation befalls you will rise, tumultuate, cry, disquiet, seduce, and never give over until they are either killed, or mortified, or satisfied. He to promises himself that the frame of his heart will be the same under a temptation as it was before, the temptation will be woefully mistaken. Am I a dog that I should do the things as Haziel? Yea, you will be such a dog, if ever you become king of Syria. Temptation from your interest will unman you. He that now abhors the thoughts of such and such a thing, if he once enters into temptation, will find his heart inflamed towards it, and all contrary reasonings overborne and silenced. He will deride his former fears, cast out his scruples, and contemn the consideration that he lived on. Little did Peter think he should deny and forswear his master, so soon as ever he was questioned whether he knew him or not. It was no better when the hour of temptation came, all resolutions were forgotten, all love to Christ buried. The present temptation closing with his carnal fear carried all before it. Now, I've been reading from Chapter 3 of John Owen's Treatise of Temptation, which I have done this work, narrated it more than once, and it's on the site, and Narrated Puritan on Sermon Audio. But I want to summarize John Owen's proofs of the treachery of the hearts within temptation. Consider the particular ways and means that such a heart has or can use to safeguard itself in the hour of temptation. And yet they are insufficient to that purpose, and it will quickly appear. First, love of honor in the world. Reputation and esteem in the church obtained by former profession and walking is one of the heart's own weapons to defend itself in the hour of temptation. Shall such a one as I fall? I, who have had such a reputation in the church of God, Shall I now lose it by giving way to this loss, to this temptation, by closing with this or that public evil? And boy, do we have an abundance of these in our day. Let me name some. Robbie, Zacharias, Art, Azuria, Jimmy Swaggart. You say I wouldn't even say those two names in the same breath. But if they both fell into fornication, adultery, and sexual sin, the shipwreck... It's the same. John Owen goes on to say, Disconsideration has such an influence on the spirits of some that they think it will be a shield and a buckler against any salts that may befall them. They will die a thousand times before they will forfeit that reputation that they have in the church of God. But alas, this is but a width or a new core to bind a giant temptation with. What do you think of the third part? of the source of heaven Revelation twelve four, had they not shown in the firmament of the church, were they not sensible more than enough of their own honor, height, usefulness and reputation? But when the dragon comes with his temptation he casts them down to the earth, yea great temptations will make men, who have not a better defense and sensibly fortify themselves against that dishonor and disreputation that their ways are intended with. But do we not know instances yet living of some who have ventured on compliance with wicked men after the glory of a long and useful profession, and within a while finding themselves cast down by this from their reputation with the saints, and have hardened themselves against it, and ended in their apostasy, was unable to keep Judas, was unable to keep Hymenaeus, nor Philetus, it kept not the stars of heaven, nor will it keep you. On the other side, the consideration of the shame it would put you to, your reproach, your loss, and the like. These also men may put their trust in as a defense against temptations, and do not fear, but to be safeguarded and preserved by it. They would not for the world bring that shame and reproach upon themselves that such and such miscarriages are attended with. Now besides, that this consideration extends itself only to open sins, such as the world takes notice of and abhors, and so is of no use at all in such cases, as wherein pretenses and colors may be invented and used, nor in public temptations to loose and careless walking, like those of our days, nor in cases that they may be disputable in themselves, so expressly sinful, to the consciences of persons under temptations, nor in hard sins, in all which, in most other cases of temptations, there are innumerable reliefs ready to be tendered to the heart against its considerations. Another argument against falling into temptations that they tell themselves, and this one they suppose outweighs the lesser considerations, namely that they would dare not wound their own consciences and disturb their peace and bring themselves in danger of the fires of hell. This surely, if any thing will preserve men in the hour of temptation, they will not lavish away their peace nor venture their souls by running on God and the thick bosses of his buckler. What can be of more efficacy and prevalency? I confess this is of great importance, and oh, that it were more pondered than it is, that we laid more weight upon the preservation of our peace with God than we do. Yet I say that even this consideration in him who is off or from his watch, and does not make it his work to follow the other rules insisted on, will not preserve him, for the peace of such a one may be a false peace or security made up of presumption and false hopes, yea, though he be a believer, it may be so. Such was David's peace after his sin, before Nathan came to him, such was the church of Laodicea's peace when ready to perish, and the church of Sardis, her peace, when having a name to live, dead. Suppose the peace cared for and proposed to safeguard a soul be true and good, yet, when everything is laid up in this one bottom, or fear only dependent upon this, when the hour of temptation comes, so many reliefs will be tendered against this consideration as will make it useless. This evil is small. It is questionable. It doesn't fall openly and downright upon the conscience. I do but fear consequences. It may be I may keep my peace notwithstanding falling into this. Others of the people of God have fallen and yet kept or recovered their peace. If it, be lost for a season, it may be obtained again. I will not solicit its station any more, though peace be lost, safety may remain. And a thousand such pleas are, which are all planted its batteries against this fort, so that it cannot long hold out. And that's a reading from Of Temptation. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast from the narrated Puritan. An analysis of Christian experience and assurance of temptations, of evil thoughts, of the Christian warfare.